Anthony Heron on 670 The Score. part of the next two hours i am your voice this is chicago sports radio 670 the score i am anthony heron broadcasting live from the score hyundai studios brought to you by your local hyundai dealers feel free to text me 312-644-6767 text zone brought to you by rosen hyundai of algonquin save time shop online at rosenhyundai.com guess who joined me throughout the show tonight will join me on the score hotline presented a circle resort and casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. And uh, honestly, because of the way things worked out, uh, timing-wise, news-wise here throughout the day, we're not going to have a lot of open phone lines, but we'll, we'll see. Once we get into uh, the latter stages of hour number two, maybe we'll sneak some callers in. If we do, we will do that on the uh, the listener line. will be powered by BetQL, BetSmarter, and Beat the Books. Download the BetQL app, QL app today or visit BetQL dot com um i think we got multiple things that count as breaking news here breaking news on the score presented by betql bet smarter and uh smarter bets start with betql download the betql app or visit betql.com today man where to begin where to begin there's there's plenty to get into there's materialized here over the last few minutes i I don't know if i'll get back around the bull so let me say just a, a congratulations to the bulls here off the rip because they are they they have now surged. I, I guess I'll use the term surged back in the first place in the Eastern Conference. So good on you to the guys at the UC trying to make that happen in the midst of in the face of so many injuries and the strife they're facing. But the schedule did lighten up on them a little bit, and they're starting to make some hay in the midst of that. So that is as uh, well played so far by the Bulls and specifically. And I, I feel like every time I get on here in the evenings lately, it's been a, an I.O. fest because as many of you out there have as well, been watching his game for quite a while and been excited about what he can bring to the table. And he is certainly bringing that and more during his rookie season and making the uh, the, the what they used to call the Future Stars game for I.O. But uh, he'll, he'll be a part of All-Star Weekend, so very happy for him that that's going to be the case. I know his mother was on the station earlier today talking about that and her excitement with uh with Io being honored in that way in the rising stars game so credit to him credit to the chicago bulls and uh congratulations to he uh, and the fam because that's going to be a fun event and a fun weekend for him to take part in and he has certainly earned that esteem um man so let's start with this jim harbaugh the anticipation for the last few days here in the midst of a lot of other Michigan-related news, like Tom Brady retiring and, and the like, the anticipation for several days now has been that Jim Harbaugh would be accepting, would be offered and would be accepting the head coaching, head coaching job for the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, it just came out in the last few minutes here that that will apparently not be the case. Jim Harbaugh, just in the last uh, last. What, 15, 20 minutes here has informed the University of Michigan in the last 40 minutes has informed the University of Michigan that even though he went through two separate interviews for the head coaching job for the Vikings, the in-person interview today, 
he is planning to return to Ann Arbor as their football coach. And there were so many signs that were pointing to Jim Harbaugh accepting it, not even, not even specifically just the reporting on it, but the notion that he would be willing to on what today was what I've begun calling the, the February signing day for college football because there is now there's two separate national signing days in college football. There's the, the now December signing day. They call it the early signing day, but really it's just turned into the main national signing day. And Michigan had had all of their you know, 22 commits in the class had already signed in December. So there wasn't a lot of additional work to be done here, but a day like today is still a day where there is a focus on recruiting because this is what's the normal, the traditional signing day on what's now become the first Wednesday in February. This is where there's still a lot of eyes on recruiting around the country. And the thought was that uh, this was going to turn into a bit of a black eye for Michigan as Jim Harbaugh was taking the, was expected to accept the Minnesota Vikings job once it was offered to him. But as of now, that will uh, apparently not be the case. Jim Harbaugh has informed Michigan that he will not be taking the Minnesota Vikings job. Now, whether or not there was ever an official offer made, I, I guess who knows that for sure. I haven't seen that reported as of yet, if the Vikings ever did actually make an official offer. But, you know, like I've heard of, you know, Mullion Hall talking about a decent bit, just where Jim Harbaugh being the caliber of coach that, uh, you know, usually if you're, if you're going after a guy like that, of that stature, that status, then you go through the interviews for sure. But, you know, you're, you're normally pursuing him. He's not exactly pursuing you. But that does mean that Jim Harbaugh will not be, will not be in the division. The Chicago Bears will not, will not have to coach and or play against a Jim Harbaugh-led Minnesota Vikings squad. So the Vikings will be moving on to their other pursuits for the other coaches that that they have lined up here. So he's not going to be in the division. That would have been, at least initially, now the the results would have been what they are. They would have played out, and I think their perception would have been shaped. <coughs> excuse me. The perception would have been shaped just by what the on-field results ended up being. But at least initially in, in at the onset, you know, it wouldn't have looked great for the Bears because Jim Harbaugh, like I was talking about earlier today, on with Lawrence Holmes, Jim Harbaugh is one of the names that, you know, whether you're talking college football coaching or coaching in the NFL, he's got a resume that that actually speaks for itself. You know, just with some of the opportunities that he's had at the at the collegiate level and the excellence that was there in him rebuilding Stanford and him then going to the 49ers, having so much success there. And, of course, now coming to the University of Michigan, being a big-time winner for the Wolverines, but obviously not getting over the hump of beating, you know, the arch nemesis his arch rival Ohio state until this past season. But the resume pretty much speaks for itself for Jim Harbaugh. So returning to the NFL, if that passion was there, which reportedly it had been, then the thought was that, Hey, maybe he'll get the bears gig. Maybe the bears make an offer a pursuit, what have you. Some reports were there that the bears had at least reached out, made a call. It would have been surprising if this was just, a leverage play because Michigan has been willing to uh, to pony up and pay Jim Harbaugh in the past. But be that as it may, right now reports are saying that Jim Harbaugh will not be in the NFC North, will not be coaching the Minnesota Vikings. He's going to be back. So I know we have a lot of Wolverines in, in the Chicagoland area who are probably listening right now. So if you didn't know that news, there you have it. Jim Harbaugh 
now will, will be returning to Ann Arbor to coach Michigan again. So I guess in theory, no egg on the face of the Bears. And I was talking about this, talked about it in detail a few different times here between Monday night, between being on with Lawrence earlier today. Just from the Bears' perspective, even though I, I certainly do believe that they, if Harbaugh was, was returning to the NFL, the Bears should have been one of the squads willing to make a strong pursuit there while at the same time, you know, even though he's not, um, you know, I, I do wonder how that portion of the process played out. That being said, Ryan Poles, impressive resume there. Matt Eberflus, you know, a, a qualified and more than qualified head coaching candidate who's been, you know, in the, in the coaching ranks for, for several years now as far as being one of these names being mentioned for head coaching opportunities, been a finalist for other jobs. So don't have a problem with either hire that was made there for GM or head coach. Certainly get to more Bears here in a moment, but then there's also the Chicago Blackhawks, which you know, I'm not going to sit here and act like I talk a whole lot of hockey when I'm on here unless there is major news that develops, and there certainly has been. I've been retweeting a little bit of what's been going on here at Big Ant Heron, but the Chicago Blackhawks have had this uh, essentially roundtable discussion that Eddie O has been leading for them with the Words family and some of the team representatives in front of some of the uh, selected media, some fans in the house, and apparently Mark Lazarus just asked what seemingly would have been a a question that I I can't imagine wouldn't have been expected or anticipated going in and just, you know, sort of tracking some of what what went into it on Twitter. We're just checking, like, my my guy Josh Friedman from WGN. Uh, He's just saying that things just got heated. This about a half hour ago, things just got heated in response to Mark Lazarus' question about Kyle Beach and how the Hawks will empower players and employees to make sure it doesn't happen again. And uh, apparently Rocky Words got rather upset about this, you know, exclaiming that we're not going to talk about Kyle Beach and we're not going to talk about what happened. We're moving on. And Danny Wirtz tried to interject in the midst of the discussion and uh, just as far as the Hawks and what they're doing moving forward. But Rocky ends up cutting off Danny and said, no, Mark followed up to which Rocky said, it's none of your business. You don't work for the company. So uh, our guy, of course, Jay Zawoski tracking this closely. And, uh, you know, he's been tweeting about it and essentially just said, you know, everything that happened from there on out is going to be meaningless because it got derailed by uh, Rocky's reaction to things. And uh, it's unfortunate, you know, amongst a number of very unfortunate things that, that the Blackhawks have have gotten their, you know, caused their own black eyes for with their handling of things. Um, to not be prepared to answer a question like that, and I mean, I don't know, even to, you know, if you were just going to sort of clumsily try to maneuver your way around it and, and answer with a non-answer or something along those lines, it feels like uh, e- even that should have been prepared for in some way, but just to act surprised and to get upset by a question about that being posed was a, uh, and I haven't seen the footage myself. I'm, I'm reacting to what I'm seeing on Twitter here, but seems to be a fairly universal chorus of both media and fans on Twitter who are aghast at the way that Rocky Wirtz reacted to, responded to the, the question from Mark Lazarus. Uh, Laz ended up tweeting, and for the record, my question was about what the Blackhawks are doing now and in the future, which the Blackhawks actually even posted when they actually you know, put out uh, the initial tweet, just letting folks know where they could link and uh, and you know be able to watch this this round round table 
they actually said, you know, we're, we're, this is basically about us being better in the future. We're going to be discussing those things. So uh, Mark Lazarus ends up calling it a just an unbelievable, unprofessional response from someone who should know better. I got my guy Brandon Fryer on the ones and twos for me tonight. So, Brandon, you said you, you got the audio. You got that available in that exchange? Yes, I got that audio ready. You ready to play? All right, yeah. Let, let me hear this for the first time, too, then. I'm very curious. I think much of what happened to Kyle Beach stemmed from a a power imbalance between a coach and a player and the powerlessness of a player in that situation. So what are the Blackhawks doing? What have the Blackhawks done? What will the Blackhawks do to empower a player in a similar situation to make sure that doesn't happen again? I'm going to answer the question at the end. I think the report speaks for itself. The people that were involved are no longer here. We're not looking back at 2010. We're looking forward. And we're not going to talk about 2010. I I know, and I'm not either. And we're not going to talk about what happened. We're moving forward. That is my answer. Now, what's your next question? I can pick up to what we are doing today. No, I don't know. That's none of your business. That's none of your business. What we're going to do today is our business. I don't think it's any of your business. Because I don't think it's any of your business. You don't work for the company. If someone in the company asks that question, we'll answer it. And I think you should get on to the next subject. We're not going to talk about Kyle Beach. We're not going to talk about anything that happened. Now we're moving on. What more do I have to say? You want to keep asking the same question? You hear the same answer? Okay, ask the next question. So the unfortunate thing in a circumstance like this, not just the, the asinine response there from Rocky Wirtz, but even the, the notion, I mean, you know, and it's, it's very difficult to be in a leadership position and not understand that dynamic. But, you know, just to explain it for those of you out there, because I've been on the, the media side of this, of course, as I'm sure all of you know, I've played sports collegiately and professionally, but I've also been uh, an executive. I've been in, in charge of content for the Arena Football League and been in those situations where you're running a press conference or you're running sort of a junket or doing activities like these sort of roundtable discussions or fan availabilities and representing leagues or helping individual teams through moments like this. And to to not understand the role of the media, because that's, that's the way Rocky Wirtz is basically phrasing things there as though he doesn't understand what – the goal is of Mark Lazarus's question, where that comes from, because Mark Lazarus is not only asking for himself and words essentially responding with, well, you don't work for the company. That's why it's none of your business. Mark Lazarus is asking on behalf, on behalf of your fans, on behalf of Blackhawks consumers and the opportunity to hear from the chairman on that. I mean, what, what the Blackhawks tweeted an hour ago when they posted the link on their Twitter account was watch live a mid-season update featuring remarks from Chairman Rocky Wirtz, CEO Danny Wirtz, and President of Business, Business Operations Jamie Faulkner on the greater vision of the Blackhawks moving forward. And Mark Lazarus, we just played it for you, well done by Brandon Fryer, just heard he asked a question about the Blackhawks, not only now, but moving forward. And Rocky Wirtz wanted absolutely nothing to do with that. And then to exclaim that you're not a part of the company, well, then who is? Because Mark Lazarus in that moment is an extension of your consumers, an extension of your fans, an extension of a lot of people out there who would like to have an idea of why they should feel more comfortable consuming 
the Chicago Blackhawks than reportedly they do right now. And again, I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm the the voice of of all Blackhawks fans out there. I go to games when the Stanley Cup playoffs are going on and when the Blackhawks were in the Stanley Cup finals. I, I damn sure went out to the UC for a number of those. But I'm not going out there for regular season games because hockey doesn't do it for me like that at all times. But I do enjoy high-level sporting events and critical moments, so I, I go out there and check them out when postseason and, and when the Stanley Cup's on the line. That's been my history of Blackhawks viewership and fandom, but have I enjoyed when they're doing well? Yes, because I love the city of Chicago, and I love having what, for a stretch, had become the best hockey organization in the NHL in their productivity on the ice. As I'm sure the Wurtzes and most folks who represent the Blackhawks at a much higher level than I do recognize is that part of that that questioning, part of that passion is from those who have lived and died with the Blackhawks for many, many years, who cover them on a daily basis like Mark Lazarus and and, and love them deeply and cover them closely like Jay Zawoski and to just exclaim and then shut it down with the notion that it's none of his business, Rocky Wirtz is essentially exclaiming it's none of the fans' business. No one else deserves to know how the Blackhawks have made themselves better. And again, the way it was posted on social media by the Blackhawks was that it's on the greater vision of the Blackhawks moving forward. That's what this midseason update was supposedly about. So I, I don't understand. You know, we talked a lot about, you know, George McCaskey and, and the Bears and being ill-prepared for, for this and that. And, you know, I, I think it's one thing to perhaps be a little bit awkward socially. Uh, I, I think it's a, it's a completely different thing to, to basically thumb your nose at, at the fan base in the way that that reads to me. So I, I don't know. It's a, it's a very – it's a very odd thing, a very surprising thing in the midst of a difficult season and, and coming off the, you know, one of the bigger controversies that the NHL, that a singular NHL team has dealt with in a while here. That's a, it's the best I can frame it as a, as a surprising reaction by Rocky Wirtz. So uh, a lot of the folks who, who cover the Blackhawks in much more detail than I do will have more on that, I'm sure, here on the score tomorrow. Uh, if any of you, want to react to that, feel free to hit the text line. But definitely wanted to get that to you because I saw the reaction to it. I'd, I'd seen the Blackhawks, you know, tweet out the link to it. I wasn't watching it. But then when I saw uh, I saw Zawaski and Lazarus and, and uh, Friedman and some of the guys starting to tweet about that, I say, yeah, this is a, this is at least something I need to need to reference and dive into that. So uh, there, there's your update there. Uh, I don't know whatever what in the great Googa Mooga was happening there with the Blackhawks uh, town hall, but that sounds like that did not go as they had hoped. But we do have a lot of other things to get into here. Some of the other huge news that's been going on in the sports world brought you, uh, you know, talked to you a little bit about the Harbaugh news already. We're going to have several guests on the show, like I referenced. We ended up even you know, adding another guest into the mix just because of some of the other uh, information that's developed here. So in, a, in just a short while, going to talk to Adam Johns. He got to speak to Ryan Poles and had a great interview with him. So we're going to talk to Adam Johns, talk some Bears, a lot of the new hires that got made by the folks at Hallis Hall. Going to also talk to Eric Edholm, who's out there covering the Senior Bowl. And now that, you got the, the front office come taking shape and you got some of the, the coaches, offensive and defensive staff starting to come together. Uh, the Bears need to very quickly get into the mold of uh, 
how do they begin to reshape their roster and, and prepare for the draft capital that is there and available to them. So talk to Eric at home about some of the prospects that are out there in the East-West Shrine game and the Senior Bowl. Looking forward to a discussion with my guy E. And then in the final hour, because of this Brian Flores lawsuit against the National Football League, I'm going to talk to a, a sports law analyst named Dan Lust, who's always very good and very informed and detailed about uh, topics like this. And one of the things I mentioned to Lawrence earlier is just trying to figure out you know, how do you even prove a, a situation like this? And what, what will Brian Flores need to do to take the NFL to task from a legal perspective? So we'll get into some of that in the final hour as well. I'm going to take my first time out here, though, kind of regroup a little bit. And uh, I do have uh, what, what I think would be probably some, some personal anecdotes, I suppose I'll call them that, related to what's going on for, you know, for head coaches around the National Football League and, and specifically where Brian Flores, uh, where, where some of this comes from. So I'll take a time out and come back and, and give you my thoughts on some of that. We'll do that next here on Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score. I mean, the, ruling, the Rooney Rule is in, intended to, uh, you know, give minorities an opportunity to sit down in front of uh, ownership, but I think what it's turned into is an instance where guys are just checking the box. And that's been the case. I've been on some interviews in the past that um, where that's, I've had that feeling. There's you know, always no way to, to, to know for sure, but but you know. That's the voice of Brian Flores, former Dolphins coach, who has sued the National Football League, filed a class action lawsuit against the NFL. Three teams in particular, but the league at large will obviously have to uh, have to take it on. And he's been kind of on the, the media circuit a bit throughout the day today, seeming very, very thoughtful, very measured about things. As I was on with Lawrence earlier today, just talking about it a bit here. It strikes me. And by the way, I'm a little bit parched, so um, you know, forgive me. I, I may take the occasional sip of water. I, I went out because I know a lot of folks are, you know, in the midst of experiencing snowmageddon uh, or, or whatever is happening right here in, in the Midwest, uh, particularly in Chicago. Calm down for a little bit during the day. It's supposed to pick back up overnight, I guess. But so we were basically trying to decide as a family, me, the wife, the the, the tiny guy, if we wanted to head out and do a bunch of like sledding, tubing, whatever, like, you know, frolic in the snow, or if we were going to go and swim, we ended up deciding to go the the swim route. And so when me and my son, we went out, had a little, went to an indoor pool somewhere and went and, you know, had a good time. But then as we're getting out of the pool, it's fairly chilly and he starts, you know, shivering fairly quickly when we get out of the pool. So we go like step into the hot tub real quick, usually just to kind of warm him up before we fully dry off and then go and shower up and, and get ready to head home. And, and by the way, I don't, I don't swim well. So fortunately, you know, this, this is a place that's usually fairly empty. We go on, on a weekday in the middle of the afternoon and, you know, it's usually nobody pretty much around. It's a pool I can, I can walk in, which is uh, fairly convenient and feasible because I'm not worried about my life or worried about having to save his life if something happens with his floaties or anything like that. But I'm definitely not a great swimmer. Um, so I, I do, I, I do, uh, I hold up the stereotype, you know, that, that's there, black guy, urban environment, doesn't swim so good. And, you know, I can, I can actually swim. I've gotten to the point where I swim underwater fine. I just, you know, the, the whole like, you know, freestyle, the treading water, just never picked up that skill because that's not the environment that I grew up in. Uh, so I don't swim well, but I do, you know, it's once, so living up to that stereotype, but I do 
I've got a, a rather extensive vocabulary. So you know, whatever stereotype may be there about a, about a black guy from an urban environment about my vocab. You know what? I'm, I'm knocking that stereotype down, but I do love fried chicken. So, all right, there's one in the other column, one in the other ledger right there, because I do love my fried chicken, but I was a band geek in middle school and high school. So that tends to catch folks off guard that I was a band geek when I was in school, especially after we got out to the burbs. Uh, I do. I love dancing and I have impeccable rhythm. I, I, I snap and I clap on the twos and fours. That's how that's supposed to go. So that's one in, in the opposite ledger. But never smoked a thing a day in my, whether legal or otherwise. I, I, don't, I don't puff, puff, pass. It's not, not a part of my thing. Never really been, never tried it. Never had an urge to do so. So, I mean, there, there's, there's positive and, and negative stereotypes that they can go both ways uh, in, in scenarios like this. And so, you know, I'm glad I kind of work, worked my way down the, down the path of stereotypes there because that is what I wanted to address for a moment here. A lot of folks who, who listen, this is something that happened, what, about 30, 35 years ago, uh, and it started making the rounds on Twitter a bit today and I'm sure there's some of you who even if you're not you're 35 or older will remember what what this clip is and uh, as a man who was thought you know a a great baseball mind someone who had been a very successful uh, baseball executive for a number of years but 35 years ago something I saw making the rounds in the Twitter sphere today I mean there there are a lot of black (laughs) players or a lot of great black baseball men who would dearly love to be in managerial positions. And I guess what I'm really asking you is to, you know, peel it away a little bit. Just tell me, why do you think it is? Is there still that much prejudice in baseball today? No, I don't believe it's prejudice. I, I, I truly believe that they may not have some of the uh, necessities to uh, be, uh, f- let's say, a field manager or p- perhaps a, a general manager. Do you really believe that? Well... I don't say that they're all of them, but they certainly are short. How many quarterbacks do you have? How many pitchers do you have that are black? It, it's same yeah, but thing I mean, you know, I got to tell you, that sounds like the same kind of garbage we were hearing 40 years ago about players when they when they were saying, ah, not 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 really, not well, really um, cut out. Hey, you remember the days, you know, they hit a black football player in the knees, and you know, no, that really sounds like garbage. If you if you forget no, to say so, it's not it's not garbage, Mr. Cobble, because. Uh, I played on a on a college team, and the center fielder was black, and then the backfield at NYU with a fullback who was black. Never knew the difference of whether he was black or white. We were teammates, so it, it just might be that they they why are, are black uh, men or, or black people not good swimmers because they don't have the buoyancy. So we hear that sound through the modern through the, the 2022 lens, and it, it sounds ridiculous. It sounds, it sounds shocking that someone would go on national television and talk to Ted Koppel and utter those things. And again, that's 35 years ago. I mean, I'm, I'm not an old man. I'm, I'm 42, not a really young man anymore. I don't know if, if 42 counts as middle-aged or not. I may have to research what's considered middle-aged these days, but... You know, so it happened within my lifespan. I was, you know, young enough where I don't recall that or recall the reaction to it or anything. But it certainly has lived on in in a, a fair bit of infamy since then. And Al Campanis, he's he's not like his his legacy was tarnished 
because of that ignorance that that he displayed in talking to in being interviewed by Ted Koppel. But then, like when you kind of dig into the background of Al Campanis, he you know he wasn't some guy with like a you know swastika in his apartment or you know some guy with white robes hanging here and there. He wasn't like just there wasn't this overt racism that just raged in Al Campanis. He played with Jackie Robinson, you know he went went out scouted all through the you know various minor league systems and and had and displayed at least publicly no real reported issues with anyone from from minority backgrounds but i was talking about stereotypes before i had brandon play that for you and that is the that's the difficulty of what brian flores will need to prove because that Al Campanis, a, a baseball executive in 1987, Ted Koppel asked him, why aren't there more blacks in leadership in baseball in 87? And Al Campanis, the best thing he could come up with, and that, that was actually, that's kind of a shorter clip that was, there was a, Ted Koppel was ready to go to commercial break. He was just kind of, he almost viewed it like he's just throwing him a quick little softball to, to end things and go to break. And then he just called Campanis out because he was dodging what felt like, a, you know, an easy enough question, I, I'm Rocky Wirt style, you know, how, how are you not prepared or, or capable of answering that in some manner? And, you know, Campanis just went, he went rogue, essentially. But he said what's essentially some of those quiet things and said it out loud. There's nothing criminal about what Al Campanis said. And again, he's not a guy who just day in, day out was viewed as some kind of a bigot or some kind of a racist. But those stereotypes that you hear there in his description when asked, why don't black people have managerial positions in baseball? Why don't black people have executive opportunities in baseball? And he basically said, they're not smart enough to do it. In, in, in you know fewer words, that's essentially what he's alluding to. They're not capable of it. That's what my perception is and I'm not going to speak for all of black America, but the perception of many people out there for what has continued to go on in the National Football League because, and again, like I've said before, just because the, the workforce, just because the players are 70 to 75% black, that doesn't mean head coaches need, need to meet that same standard or that same percentage. But historically, there's been 20 in the entire history of the National Football League there have been 20 black head coaches. Now, are you under the impression, if you're listening to this, are you under the impression, if you're one of these people who's talking about things being a meritocracy or, or bootstraps or, or any of those other terms that someone might use to try and describe why it's just always the best person who gets the job, quote unquote. So if you truly believe that there's only been 20 black men who've been capable of being a head coach in the National Football League, then perhaps ask yourself, are you in line with Al Campanis? Now, through my lens, that doesn't automatically, like I'm, I've said this repeatedly since 2020, we've been having more of these discussions. I'm not quick to call anybody a racist, but there are, there are biases, there are stereotypes, there, there are studies you can read all over the place on, the, on hiring practices everywhere all around planet earth and people in power tend to hire folks who look like them tend to hire people of a similar background to theirs 
And that's what shapes their trust. That's what shapes their comfort. The question is, and we'll be able to get into this in the next hour when I have a a legal analyst on with me, the struggle I believe Brian Flores will have is because when it comes down to it, there's 32 teams, there's, what, 30-ish owners who are white men, so how do you go about legislating their comfort, legislating their morality, legislating their bias? How can you really do that? How can you prove that they essentially did something wrong by so infrequently hiring black coaches. That's going to be the difficulty, but that doesn't mean, even if it's difficult to prove that it's illegal in a court of law, doesn't make it wrong. Doesn't mean it shouldn't change. So like I said earlier today, like I've said frequently over the last couple of days, a lot of respect, a lot of deference, a lot of love, a lot of pride in the fact that Brian Flores is willing to to take this battle on. I don't know where the battle will end up. I'm certainly not optimistic that the battle will suddenly lead to this this groundswell of of African-American head coaching hires around the league. But he's willing to attempt that. And if if nothing else, I I respect the fact that he's taken this fight on because it's, it's been there for generations. And that was 1987, 35 years ago, isn't that long ago? So you want to talk meritocracy, you want to talk bootstraps, you want to talk all that stuff. That clip is an example of someone in a position of power from the very, very recent past and how people can view African-Americans, how African-Americans have been viewed, how black people and their, their acumen for things have been viewed at points historically. And there's not a lot of evidence that as it relates to the head coaching opportunities in the NFL that there are NFL owners who have a, a similar struggle with those stereotypes, with those biases in the hiring or the lack thereof and, and the practices of trying to get uh, more diverse head coaches out there. I'm going to take a time out. We are going to talk some Bears. I'm going to get Adam Johns on the line. They've been making some, not just the GM, not just the head coach, but now you're getting coordinators and assistant coaches and everything going on over there as well. Adam is very informed on that, as you know. So I'll take a time out, come back. We'll get into the Bears here with Adam Johns from The Athletic. We'll do that next on The Score. And the last thing, the most important piece, is we're going to take the North and never give it back. Turn that page, Ryan Poles. Said they are taking the North. Folks started shaking in their boots a little bit. They found out Harbaugh is going to be in Minnesota. Maybe the Vikings had a little infrastructure to decide they were going to get a stranglehold on the North, but not going to be the case, at least not for now. We shall see. We shall see. But that man you heard also spoke to our guest, who is on the Circle Resort and Casino in Las Vegas hotline, home of the world's largest sports book. Our guest is Adam Johns of The Athletic. You can find him on Twitter at Adam Johns. Adam, appreciate you uh, stepping away from the shovel, man, coming out here and you know, getting some work in, getting a little sweat in, I would imagine. Now you're here on the line with me. You feeling okay? You survived it all right? Well, ask me in the morning how the back is feeling. I might have to go run outside and grab some ice and ice myself down. That, that snow was heavier than I thought it would be when I stepped out there. Well, it's a, it's a combination snow. I, I was out there trudging around a little bit early. It's that, that kind of wet, slushy mix that, that can get a little uncomfortable when you're trying to shovel through it. Uh, is it done? Uh, what, what's the We're, latest update? Are We are, we we are done. 
Okay. We are done. So, right. so my again, my apologies for for getting back to you so late on the text <laughs> message. I, I came in, and but and I'm happy to be here. Yeah, yeah, glad you are, man. The Bears are making some hires. There are things moving and shaking out there at Hallis. Not only the GM and the head coach, but now we got a couple of coordinators, a couple of position coaches. Are any of the names between the the coordinators and the position coaches any of them surprising up to this point? You know what? kind of stands out to me is that just look at 2018 Matt Nagy is coming from this revered respected organization in the Kansas City Chiefs led by Andy Reid and he comes by himself by himself that's it I still remember the storylines where he had to teach Harry Heastan the offensive line coach of the offense we had to teach Mark Helfrich the offensive coordinator his offense and that was the storyline early on that Matt Nagy was teaching everyone this isn't the case with Matt Eberflus. He is bringing along his linebackers coach, his new defensive coordinator who coaches the secondary out there. He's bringing his guys with them, uh, with him, I should say. And I just think it's a positive sign if you want to compare and contrast in the last situation with Matt Nagy. Uh, I like that observation a lot. I'm wondering with Alan Williams in particular, because he's been a defensive play caller before for the Vikings right here in this division, has been around the block for quite a while in the NFL. Now, Eberflus obviously is a defensive guy, so he knows his system and he's bringing some of his guys with him. But the fact that Williams has called defenses before, should that lend any additional, uh, I suppose, confidence that Eberflus will be somewhat hands-off? Because you you never know with someone with their particular side of the ball. If he's claiming he's not going to be calling the snap by snap, and you're never completely sure if they can leave that alone, should the fact that he and Williams have worked together and Williams has done this gig before, does that mean Eberflus can maybe be that much more comfortable allowing him to run it? Absolutely, 100%. I think it gives him more opportunity to go hang out with the quarterbacks. Hang out with the receivers to see what he has there. You know, hang out and have lunch with the big guys up front in the offensive line. <laughs> if Ryan Poles is true to his word, there's going to be some new guys in there in that offensive line room. So he has an opportunity, Matt Eberflus does, to get to know his offensive players because he has a guy in Allen Williams that he trusts to run his defense. I'm sure he's going to have an influence uh, on everything, really. Offensive coaches, defensive coaches, whoever the head coach is, has that type of influence over the entire structure of weekly game plans, monthly meetings, all that stuff. That's just what a head coach is. It's what he does on game days. That should be understood by everybody. But to have someone with head, or with defensive coordinator experience, to have someone he trusts, I think that gives Matt Eberflus the opportunity to actually walk across the building to meet some of the offensive guys and see what's going on there. With those offensive guys, Luke Getze running the Bears offense as a first-time play caller, uh, give us a, a few of the details that have been sort of trickling out between his, I guess, his extraction from Green Bay, where it sounds like maybe Aaron Rodgers was really eager to be able to keep him around. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't hurt when Aaron Rodgers is singing your praises, right? Because I don't think it's easy to get. I mean, Aaron Rodgers is a different dude. I think we should all know that by now. To, to earn his trust to earn that type of belief in only a couple seasons, I think that speaks volumes to what Getty can provide. Now, there are concerns. He doesn't have NFL playing calling experience. He was arguably, I don't know, the fourth guy to count Rodgers there in the offensive hierarchy. You got Matt LaFleur, you got Nathaniel Hackett, who is now the head coach of the Broncos, and you have Aaron Rodgers, and then you have Luke Getty. So maybe he's the fourth offensive mind in Green Bay. But you know what? 
working alongside all of those guys, learning that system, the RPOs, all that stuff, is going to benefit him coming here. And again, earning Aaron Rodgers' trust, hard to do, doesn't hurt at all. Yeah, no doubt about that, man. Continuing our discussion here with Adam Johns on Chicago Sports Radio 670. The score of The Athletic covers the Bears, and he's on Twitter, at Adam Johns. And you and, uh, you and Kevin Fishbane had an opportunity to, uh, to sort of delve into what makes Ryan Poles tick a little bit in a, an article you guys just posted on The Athletic today. Give us a sense for what's there. I, I just – so let me give you a little rundown of how the, the day went. You have that hour-long introduction press conference with Ryan Poles and Matt Eberflus. Then after that, the Bears put these guys to the car wash where every affiliate, every station in town, every outlet, had some one-on-one time in small groups with the new head coach and the new GM. Uh, when we sat down with uh, Ryan Poles, I, the, the discussion about offensive line, you know, I, I had asked him like how that influences, like being a former offensive lineman, how that influences, you know, him as a as an evaluator now, how it influences how he views his team and, and whatnot, and it's a major influence. What stood out to me from that conversation, though is what he said about the Bears' offensive line this year when he watched them and what they didn't do to help Justin Fields. I'm not just talking about blocking. and I'm talking about when sacks are given up, whether it's in Green Bay, whether it's in Cleveland, where they got nine of them on, on Justin Fields, and nobody's helping him up. Look, I think Jason Peters, I made note, note of this, did it a couple times, and everybody remembers the Kevin Jenkins, Jermaine Effetti situation, I think in Week 13 against the Vikings, but I don't think I saw it enough. Did you see it enough? I, I just did not see the offensive line railing around their young quarterback week after week, especially when it became clear to me in the press box that the opposition was taking its liberties on him, getting those extra hits on him post-whistle, post-play, when it became clear to everyone that the officials weren't going to call those unnecessary roughness penalties and help out Justin Fields. That's where the offensive line has to step in, and it was just not enough. Not enough for Ryan Poles. And I, I love the fact that he, you know, it's one thing to assume that a, a former offensive lineman and now he's in the in the position to make decisions on the roster, that he'll pay this extra attention to the guys up front. And certainly the Bears need that for the O-line, but that he has studied things in that level of detail, not just who's in the lineup or, you know, are they technically sound, but sort of those intangible kind of details of, you know, whether or not you're playing with that type of urgency, that type of effort, that type of engagement that especially a young quarterback can benefit from knowing everybody's in the fight with him. So the fact that he observed it at that level, I'm wondering just in the time you got to more closely interact with him, do you have the impression that like everyone I've spoken to him about him uh, uses the word detailed in, in describing what makes him what makes him excellent? Did you get a sense for the type of detail that he views things in through that prism? Absolutely, absolutely. But again, what struck me was the emotions of it. And everybody wants to get so nuanced with with scheme and whatnot. And what I liked from Ryan Poles is that when the discussion about his offensive line came about, and this was a very good question, I want to give credit to to Joe Lewis from the Barber's Chair Network. He was the one who got this conversation going. But when the, the offensive lineman came up, and the hits on Justin Fields came up. You could see the emotion in him. Football is an emotional game. And you know, I mean, you played it. I, it's, it's, it's just such an intangible part of it. And to hear him say that he got agitated, 
seeing his quarterback on the ground and how he watched the five guys, the five offensive linemen, and what they did, their body language, it tells me he's looking for something different, something that, that isn't always found in numbers, so, something emotional, something intangible. And I, I think if, if you take anything away from that article that we have up on The Athletic, like that's it. Like he's, he's judging players' passion to protect their quarterback. And I think that is such a – it seems so obvious, but it's so important. And you could debate whether or not the last regime really did it. Details and effort, detail and effort. Those seem to be a, a familiar refrain that's kind of connecting Ryan Poles and Matt Eberflus. And it, I'm wondering then in getting to discuss things with, with both of them and especially in some of the breakout sessions that you described, is that is that part of where some of that, I guess, kinship it seems like it, it was born and, and what made Eberflus the guy for Ryan Poles? Yeah, yeah, I, I got this story. I don't mean to keep talking about what we're going on in the athletic, but I, I got yeah. this story coming up tomorrow um, where I, I just, it speaks to your question where they're, they're, he's trying to connect. This is Ryan Poles. He's trying to connect with coaches around the league and he's looking at defensive units or, or units that seem to, that he identifies with. And he, and he says he looks for violence. Violence and guys running to the football and guys taking the ball away. And that was the Colts defense under Matt Eberflus. So they connected right away, even before the interviews began with the Bears. They had known each other. They had connected on some level. And it's because of that violence, that effort, the running to the football, the relentlessness that's needed to play this sport at a high level and be consistent about it, that effort-based system. He saw it in Matt Eberflus, and he, wanted to, and he wants to bring it to the Bears. And you heard that, that hits principle that Eberflus has. Ryan Poles is all in on that. <laughs> the hits principle, the tracking of loafs, things along those lines. And um, one of the questions with Matt Eberflus, as far as just at, at least the you know his cover two tendencies, whether or not you know the modern NFL has kind of caught up with it. Can you stop the best offenses with that? Well, what's your sense for just where he's at as far as his defensive scheme and and just structurally? Does anything about it, in his opinion? need to be tweaked or adjusted or enhanced in some way? And I'm sure. I'm sure. But if you watch the Colts, they weren't just always playing two deep safeties and the corners playing curl to flat. You know, they were doing different things. It wasn't just mainly zone defenses. You know, there were some zone blitzes involved on there. There were some man coverages and whatnot, some two-man stuff. He, he did some different things that you have to do to keep up with these pass-happy offenses in a league where – Nearly every single rule benefits the quarterback, so he's adjusted. So there's a lot of similarities between that Tampa two that the everybody should remember from the good old days of Lovey Smith. You know, Lance Briggs, Brian Urlacher, Charles Simmons. Some of those philosophies are coming back, but Matt Eberflus has modernized some things around it because he's had to. He's had to adjust because the NFL is it's geared towards the passers. It really is, and these pass attacks. You know, the way defenses attack the passer have had to adjust, and I think Matt Eberflus has done a good job of that over four years being in charge of the Colts' defense. Last thing I got for you, Adam, I'm wondering, because my, my, big, my big question, my big uh, sort of observation I'll be tracking closely will be just structurally how the Bears may may end up being different than they've been 
over the last couple of regimes here to kind of set themselves up in a stronger way to improve, to develop, to to get better in a way that the last few coaching staffs haven't improved year over year. Does the the hire of Ian Cunningham, does having an assistant general manager for the first time in Bears history, is that is that just the first sign that maybe structurally the Bears are going to be a little bit different than they've been before? Or might that be just overstating just having a, a new job title available? No, don't, don't overstate it. Um, please don't, because what you had was an outside hire as well. I think that's a great way to look at it, too. Because when Ryan Pace, if you want to compare it to the last regime, the top two guys that he brought along with him were uh, Josh Lucas and Joey Lane. Those became his right-hand man in House Hall. That was the director of player personnel and his director of football administration. They came from the Saints with Ryan Pace. They were his first two hires. Then he did some other moves, but to see Ryan Poles hire outside the Kansas City organization, obviously someone he's very familiar with in Ian Cunningham, but someone who's got different strategies, comes from different philosophies from the Eagles and the Ravens. That alone shows, it's called humility. Let's, let's call it you know, a lack of pride, all of those things, that there's not only one way to go about things, to have different voices, different philosophies come into play here, especially with the Ravens and their success. The Eagles, they just won a Super Bowl not too long ago. So I think that type of humility shown by Ryan Poles, where he's just not drawing from the same organizations in terms of, of similar philosophies to hire outside the Kansas City regime, I like that a lot. Can't argue with that. Adam, really appreciate your time, man. Great coverage as always. Going back outside. Got to go take care of some more snow, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck with that, man. Don't throw your back out. (laughs) Take Uh, care. That is Adam Johns of The Athletic. He is on Twitter, at Adam Johns. Joining me on the Score Hotline presented by Circa Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. We've got guest after guest working for you here at the top of this next hour. We're going to take a a bit of a a step back and look at things from a scouting perspective. What's available out there as these all-star games are going off right now. The East-West Shrine, the Senior Bowl, NFLPA Bowl is going to be going on soon. I'm going to be calling the HBCU Legacy Bowl in a couple of weeks. Let's get a sort of a a 5,000-foot view from Eric Edholm of Yahoo on what's happening from a scouting perspective and some of these prospects trying to make their way into the National Football League. We'll do that next on Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score.